Hello, I'm Penelope Maver, and welcome to Earth Converse podcast, an exploration into our relationships and conversations with the earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other, and the earth that is our home. And I'm very honoured today to talk to Petra Snow. She is the Executive Director from the School of Lost Borders. And this is the school I mentioned in Episode 1 and 2, founded by Steve Foster and Meredith Little. And they help people to undertake vision fasts and rites of passage, the ancient human practices of going out to nature to seek connection, wisdom, healing, and belonging. And in Episode 4, I interviewed my guide, teacher, and Petra's colleague, Emerald North. And as guides, they help prepare people to go out solo in nature and help them make sense of their journey when they return. And I've done some training, co-guided, and was to be with them next month. And Petra and I have never met, but I tell you what, if she ever writes to you, uh, your heart will sing. She is a writer and a poet, beautiful with her words. Indeed, I'll include her blog in the episode description. Uh, Her blog, Journeys into Healing, explores her own journey with breast cancer as a rite of passage. So here she is, calling from the desert of California. She's outside, so you might hear some action. Uh, And she's willing to free flow, so listen in as she shares her experiences and perspectives on the conversations and relationships with the earth. And I must admit, I'm a little nervous. To be here, Penelope. Good morning. Yeah, well, good morning. (laughs) Um... So I just, it's the big, big uh, sort of question, but what is your relationship with Mother Earth and how has it evolved? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I wanted to say thank you for having me here for this conversation. I thought about this morning where to have the conversation and I really did not want to be in my office, which I am spending too much time in (laughs) these days as it is. And so I felt like if we're going to have a conversation about, about the natural world and the movement of the natural world, I better be as close to it as I can be. So I've walked out just a little ways and I'm very lucky to live in a place where within 10 minutes I can um, be looking out at the, um, what is it? The southernmost glacier of the northernmost hemisphere of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And on our other side is the beautiful mountain range of the Inyos, which from right from where I'm sitting on a, um, old fallen tree, I can also see, um, the peak of the Inyos, which I can almost see the place, at least the general direction, of the place where you would have been in base camp in Elope in uh, just a couple of weeks when you would have come to the California month-long training, which we had to cancel due to the pandemic. So that's where I am. And I think that's just a way to say, you know, where we come from, um, where we speak from. And it's a place here that the uh, Paiute people um called Kaya Hunaru, um, the land of flowing water. And uh, it used to be an orchard. This entire valley used to be an orchard before the water was diverted to Los Angeles. Mm. So I think my relationship, personal relationship with nature, 
um, has changed so much over time. And that's, you know, when you, you mentioned this question before we met, that that's where you wanted to start. And it really had me thinking about my relationship with nature from the beginning to where it is now. And it's incredibly how in the 55 years that I've been um, on this planet in this particular body, how much my relationship um, has shifted. Mm. And um, the heart of the work that has been my life's work is actually the claim that we as humans are not separate from nature, that um, human nature is not separate from nature, and that all is nature. Um, There is no (laughs) non-nature. Nature is everything. Um, And so... And that was certainly not my experience in my growing up. Um, in fact, in my growing up, you know, I, I grew up as a uh, little girl in northern Germany um, who would open her refrigerator and get milk out of the bottle and pour it over cereal that was coming from a box. I didn't have any understanding of the relationship between food and the land. And so I, like many, many, many millions of us that are so-called civilized, have really lost a tactile sense of nature from beginning to start. So food is only really one venue of that, but it's a big venue. Mm. Um, Movement is another one because we, um, we are moving in you know, machinery, we are so insulated from nature um, that it's hard for us to have the sense of the rawness of nature, the experience of it, um, be anything that is that we are in close relationship with. And I think while everything is nature, that's the other thing, you know, n- none of what, none of the metal on the plane um, is not also nature you know there is nothing that isn't nature that's the that's what how i walk in the world and yet the more um modified the form is the less the sense of the energy field and connection is available it's almost like you're at the end of a very 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 long line that reaches all the way back to the mother root and so I think I was always, like most children, naturally drawn to go to the mother route, you know, to be outside as much as possible, to get barefoot when it was warm, you know, to be running around and eating wild hazelnuts when we could find them or whatever it was, you know, in our play, in our, in our world, that was where I felt, you know, most, most belonging. And um, I think this is true for, I have heard so many people in circle. I have listened to so many stories. I hear this over and over and over again. Nature was my sanctuary. Nature was this. Nature was this to me. Nature was the only place. Whether children have been through grueling abuse or whatever, they go to nature. They naturally go to the raw form of life, which we are always part of. So again, I use life the way I use nature. It's, it's what we are, what, what, you know, what we are part of, what we belong to. 
And, um, yeah, they, you know, I've heard stories of children that were hiding out under trees when the alcoholic father was raging through the house. You know, there's an innate way in which we take refuge um, in nature, in which we we know we need it. Um, it's as innate and as extinctual as opening up the window to let some fresh air in. We're just needing to see the sky, you know. Um, that's instinctual. That's really deep in us. And I think no matter how much we are separated and have been separated, um, those those seeds in us are are still in there. That that remembering that human nature is not separate from nature is part of us. You cannot beat it out of anyone. And even though it has been beat out of us in many many ways, it is like a seed, and you know all it needs is get water. And so no matter how um, removed we have been, the exposure to raw nature has that potential to water that seed. And I love to understand more and follow the thread of seeds because they are the most intricate miracle of nature. If we, you know, if we look at all these great inventions and things, but you look at this tiny little seed that has everything in it to make this amazing plant to even make an entire tree that lives for hundreds of years. And some of these seeds, they can survive. They have actually found seeds in um, old, old under the ice, you know, artifacts of medicine bags of people that would carry seeds around that were 30,000 years old and they still sprouted. It's like, you know, and so that to me is that same sense that I have with someone who was born in, like I was in Hamburg, Germany, in a completely, you know, in a culture, in a big city, in, in you know, war, through wars and, you know, white culture and all the stuff. And yet, and yet, you know, that seed, if it gets watered, you know, everything can still blossom. And so that's kind of like the long arc, I think, you know, from the level of separation that I experienced as a child and, you know, the level of estrangement uh, to what what is resounding in me today in a way that um, of belonging. And that seed of belonging is in all of us. And... It's um, it's magical, mm. and it wants to and needs to be remembered. Mm. And from some of the seed to the sort of the the belonging, the woman of rooted rootedness. What what were the points of you know real spurging of growth, or you know where or the branches, or where was the pruning? Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That's the story of my life. Yeah. Mm. Well, one part of it, um, one part of it was very clear for me. This was before I knew anything about righteous passage. Um, I was 19 years old. I finished high school. I didn't know what to do in the world because nothing made sense to me. Making money just didn't make sense to me. Um, I felt like, I mean, in Germany, it was a good social system. I realized that I was already going to be in the top 10 percentile of people in the world population as far as wealth goes. And 
and safety and security. And I thought, why, you know, why I, I would want to make money was, was past me. I had no desire for material possessions. I was deeply craving belonging. I was deeply questioning purpose and who I was and what I was to do with my life. Like all those good questions that are really torturing us. <laughs> and they sent us on the journey. And so my journey sent me to a friend who was a rich friend with a sailboat, who was a friend of my parents um, in the Mediterranean, who took me to Sardinia. And there I took it upon myself to um, camp and hitchhike down the coast and wanting to discover life there on my own. And for some serendipitous reason, I ended up in a valley that was very much, it was called the Valley of the Moon. It had washed out um, granite caves that were by the ocean, and there was a lot of mix of hippies and, um, yeah, mainly hippies, people running around uh, naked, uh, throwing acid, which I had no idea that they were even doing at the time. But I was fascinated by the life of living just by the sea and being, you know, out there every day, with my body, it was the first time I was in a place where there were absolutely no lights. And so I was really living this very surreal um, dream state life. And I stayed in that place for several weeks, um, sort of slowly rewilding, mm-hmm. um, losing more and more of my clothes and uh, being more and more comfortable with sometimes being naked and uh, um it was a very interesting, very eclectic um, sort of people there that I met. Lots of them uh, runaways. And uh, eventually somebody one morning stole all my money, which I had kept somewhere in one of the caves. And I thought we were all friends. And I, you know, I had my little thing there. And so luckily they didn't take my passport. But um, I was all of a sudden without a dime to my name. And it was a really defining moment in my life. I, um, that day I gave everything away that I had. I had a backpack. I had lots of things that they didn't have there. And so I gave all of it away. I only had my sleeping bag and a belt to, to strap it together and, and hang it over my shoulder. And I began to live on the street with this other band of people. And we would, uh, my first Italian sentence was, uh, do you have some change? And um, so I lived on the street for three months, um, learning a lot. But my really deep root of that journey was the understanding of how it really was for three months to live under the cycles of the moon when I could actually walk the cliffs without falling, how on the new moon night I couldn't get to certain places how we could fish out of the water and make food, how to go hungry, Mm. how to um, be in community of people in order to make it through in some way. Um, And it was my first rite of passage without knowing what it was. It stripped me of the identity that I had before. Mm. Um, And I had no idea what it was, but, you know, again, most of what we do in the rites of passage is not facilitation. We witness the process. We, you know, try to give it a container, a voice. We support it. We partner it. We are not the ones offering the initiation. That's life. You know, life is perpetually moving us. 
um, into initiation and initiatory processes. So for me, that was my big one. Mm, and my big like, first one, and it's what put my feet on this path. Yeah. You know, since then, I've, I went back to Italy every summer, even after I kind of went home, cleaned up for a while. Eventually, um, I spent every three months at the beach in Italy um, during those times while I was in university, eventually, and um, became a naturopath, eventually. So all those pathways of you know, the natural world that I was pursuing and eventually found my way into um, the books of Sun Bear and the book of the Vision Fast and Stephen and Meredith. And by my 20s, I was in this very valley, very close to the place I'm standing in right now, um, doing training with them and then starting to guide by the time I was, you know, 28 years old. Um, my first vision fast was actually in Spain, um, since you are reporting out of Spain right now, in a in the little island of Formentera, mm. um, and it was in a cave. So my first vision fast was in the darkness of a cave for three days and three, three nights in total darkness. Um, that was my beginning of this um, of this practice. Yeah. <sighs> It sounds like this, the sort of the real sense of being in you, like literally stripped bare, um, and then in this sort of emergence, and then just following, yeah, this this literally the nature's path or naturopath, and and into the into the um, guiding world. I'm, I I guess um, there's so much um, yeah richness in those stories, but in terms of um, yeah your vision quest or your work with. Um, uh, Sunbear and uh, with with guiding, do you, do you converse with the earth? What does that mean to you? What is that? What is that relationship that you have? This you know, you've got this real sense of belonging. It is your container for mm. your. But how would you describe mm-hmm. describe it for you? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I think one of the Think of the actual conversation with nature um, that has really become more and more important to me. It, again, it too has really changed over time. I, I think I will, I will start there because if I track back, you know, when I started fasting and being out in these ceremonies um, in my early 20s, there was a lot of... Um, you know, an awkwardness about the how. So there was a lot of questions. Like one of my first things I think that I noticed when I did vision fasting is how little I still belonged. So I was terrified of the night by myself, terrified of whether it was mountain lion or whether it was going crazy or whether it was just some wrestling in the bushes. There was a sense of being out all alone and the darkness would come, and I would not feel my belonging. I remember many fasts where my knife was like right next to my sleeping bag, you know, blade slipped out, blade in the sand, so I could say, grab it right away. And there were many a time at night I would. Um, There were many a time I had to die to my fears of not belonging and say, I, I, I can't go back. You know, it's like I can't turn around and run away from this fear because it's here with me and I, the only way to be with it is to be here. And if this is going to cost me my life, then I, I, I will, 
I will go for that. You know, so that kind of staying power. And over time, it really took time for me to learn that I was actually really helped. So every time I would come back from a threshold, safe and sound, I would feel incredibly empowered and loved and realizing that even though I had no way to defend myself out there and I went to some pretty far places, I would still be held. So that must somehow mean that the grandmothers, whoever, you know, life itself actually wanted me to be there. That I wasn't just protecting myself enough to be safe, which is really what, what I was taught as a civilized person, right? I mean, it goes so deep in our culture of this colonial society that we come out of where we are always in houses. And so we are always having these big walls around us. And when the wind, you know, is harsh outside, we go inside. Yeah. And we are always in this puffered, buffered way. And what is lacking in us is the feeling that actually we are uh, our own movement, our own feeling, our own force also, and our own ability and capability. We're so padded. You know, our temperature is always kind of magically tempered mm-hmm. and, um, and pampered. We are really pampered. So part of it was exposing myself to the risk of not belonging that the fears that came with not belonging, you know, whether they're rational or not rational, it doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) It's all the same real, you know. Um, I think that's one of the things that we have to learn here. And and I think the, the conversations that I used to have were very different. You know, a lot of times, this is another big indicator, and I hear this in stories all the time. I think it's part of our humanness as being so estranged from nature. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the sense of not being able to find my place. You know, I would walk around on all these mission fasts, and I would ask spirit to find me, you know, to find my place. I couldn't find a place. I would just, I, I have had fasts where I would return to base camp despaired, you know, after like hours and hours and, and tell my teachers there was no place out there for me. That cost miles and miles of territory, you know. I have had moments of exhausting myself to try to find a place and finally breaking down somewhere with a, my gallon of water and after a really good song cry, sitting there and looking around saying, this is not so bad, you know. Will you have me, please? Like, will you will you let me be here? And it was like, and the yes was coming, you know? And there were lots and lots of times when I would ask a question into the wind or to a tree or to a rock, and I wouldn't quite get a clear answer. Or I would get a clear answer, and I wasn't really sure whether that was really the answer or whether I was just making up that answer, and all of everything was coming back at me. And what really reflected was all the doubt. And I would say today, from being an almost crone now, you know, I got into cronehood early, I think, through menopause early and through cancer. Um, it just takes time. That's what I would love more of everything, just tell the youngins today that are struggling with the sense of not belonging and whatever fear that is and whatever non-communication that they have with nature is that all those communications are part of finding their way there and it's part of the way finding them and it's part of that conversation and by today you know my seeds have been watered so much by my times out in the raw 
agroecologist times out in the raw because that's really where it is. It's where the original is. You know, the un the unchanged. The less changed it is, the more easy it is for me to feel the mother root. And as a refugee of my civilized um, culture, I mean need to do that for the rest of my life. You know, is ways to find the mother root. And, you know, maybe more so than other communities or other members of our of our community and tribal people and people that have had that very closely held, um, they may not feel that need as much as I do. Um, yeah, so today I would say, you know, that's really important to me is that even all the ways in which we don't belong actually bring us to belonging. You know, it's more of a, of a, of a risking ourselves to actually be there and to trust that whatever is coming on our vision fast, whether it's the pain of belonging, not belonging, or the fears that are paralyzed us, if we are just able to be there with it, that's all we have to do because it is the next medicine for us. It will move us forward. It can't but move us, you know, into a fuller expression of ourselves. It is watering our seeds. Um, I'm wanting to ask so, collective in terms of um, the collective about like in terms of where we are now in the current conversation. You know, is is COVID watering our seeds? Is it- I think uh, I think certainly you know there's so much to say about that, but I think certainly it is all part of. I mean, the one thing I will say is that nature doesn't waste anything. And so this is something I go to on my personal level, and I can't tell you what COVID is all about. I don't. I think that we are finding out. <laughs> it's finding us out. Um, we're not the ones that are guiding the ceremony clearly, um, but we are. But we are part of it, you know. And that's the thing. It's like I think as humans, we are offered an invitation. That's how I see it to understand that we are not in control of life. And I think that is evoking a lot of fear right now. The conversation has moved, you know, within a couple of months from the general sort of more intellectual, for some of us more physical, but a lot of it more kind of like that mercy kind of, oh my God, humans are destroying the earth. This is terrible for the generations that are going to be down the road for us, which is a more of a theoretical standstill to a really deep gut level fear of Oh my God, you know, this is happening and our people might, might perish. You know, I mean, and then we go to, no, we're going to find a vaccine. We're going to kick this thing. We're going to do all these things, right? It's really reminding me in a lot of ways of the cracking open that happens when you're diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, I'm writing a piece about that right now. Um, and you realize that your life is not forever. You know, I think there's those of us who have realized, but they're a small minority that, um, that we too will not last as a species, you know, because, because everything is constantly evolving and moving. And so the only way for us to really absorb the grandness of that is by understanding that we are not just the separate beings that we think. We are not just the ones that are in this current body right now. I'm sorry. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a dirt bike rider that is... Having a really good time. So, yeah, I think the understanding that we are not in control and maybe with the softening of that, also the understanding that we are 
don't need to be in control. And it doesn't mean that we're not in relationship with. It doesn't mean that we're just going to let COVID wash over us, you know, and, and just whatever happens. But it means to be in relationship, to understand that the way life works is being in relationship with instead of having power over. You know, I think the more we are starting to understand how, you know, there's these great studies now about the forests and how the trees are all acting in accord and how, I mean, you look at everything, you know, what we breathe out, they breathe in, what they breathe out, we breathe in. Just asking myself a question the other day, rather philosophical level question, that if there were no more humans, you know, a lot of people say right now we wouldn't be missed. Like, you know, we have such a deep, dark, dark sense about who we are, such shame as humans mm. for what, where we are in our evolution that we feel like the planet would be better off without us. And I really asked myself that question and I thought, well, if, if I need the oxygen that the tree generates, does it also need the carbon that I exhale? You know, does that, does that, is that because there's nothing in nature that uh, appears in vain? Mm. Um, Everything that appears is, is in some way, shape, or form the next step. Mm. Um, and so that's how I see it with the pandemic, too. There's something here in the pandemic that it wouldn't be arising if it wasn't in some way, shape, or form needed. Um, if it wasn't needed by the greater, which we do not know. It's like the, that's the piece of unknown to us which we forgot, you know, we are all very much stuck in a, in a uh, relationship. Um, even when we think ourselves as stewards, I think sometimes we look at ourselves as apart from, and the unbeknownst to us, the great mystery, that is, that is that part of, you know, that, that, that red thread that we are part of, um, you know, that's the, the thing that doesn't come or go, if you will, that's, that's the essence that we are part of. And, We've pushed that part away a lot. I mean, we have, as a, as a, as a species, a Western culturalized species has really pushed death completely in the shadows. And part of me is wondering if part of what's happening right now is periodically, you know, death will come forward and take its place. And that was one of my first hits that I had actually about um, this time is that death is sitting at the table again. You know, we have mitigated it. We have um, so many treatments now. We have almost, you know, we have people experimenting whether people even have to die or maybe could live forever. Um, we've really been, um, we have a deep, deep um, fear of death. And a lot of our decisions have to do with that. And it's, uh, it's bereaving us of an experience. It's also because it's coming out of being bereft and I, yeah, there's more to say there, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment. I know. What do we do with it? You know, what can we do in terms mm-hmm. of relationship with death and and with COVID and in the sense of ambiguity in this moment as, as, a, as you know, I suppose it's a how-to and a sort of... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I want to go back one more time to, I think a lot of this has to do in the split, 
you know, in, in splitting human nature from nature. That's really the conversation I think that has, it's, it's at the root there. And I want to say that, um, I've listened to a really wonderful man, and I wish I could remember his name and the name of his tribe, but I think he was from the Pomo tribe in um, Los Angeles, and what, what was, you know, what came Los Angeles Basin from the region down there. He talked about in a, a slideshow, um, a great presentation at the Bishop um, Paiute Center, he talked about how people that came over to colonize um, this land um, came with the understanding that um, indigenous people were savage and they came with the understanding that the natural world was a wilderness. And they're really questioning that word because they're saying to us, it was just life. It was our world. It wasn't, um, it, it wasn't a wilderness. And so the wilderness is sort of, is uh, associated with being wild. It's associated with being savage. And um, and he was basically saying to us, that really indicates how separated you really all were, you know, at that time. And it really got me into thinking because um, at the at the root, the wound is the wound of not belonging. And it made me think about how all this non-belonging has really come um from a long ways away and a long ways down. So if in the absence of belonging, we will try to conquer, you know, as a human species, I think um, the absence of belonging leads to the need to conquer. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really a coping mechanism that's caused by the suffering of displacement and, and separation. Um, and I think that's what had this run in, in our history. So in some ways, you know, as, as white people, I'm sad to say, it's a generalization. And But I, I feel sometimes we are professional homeless people. You know, we, we are flitting about and uh, we have invaded and colonized and enslaved other cultures for a really long time. And um, and again, you know, no... No villa, right? No, no, no uh, millions, no riches will ever really replace the sense of belonging. And so it, then all you can do is more and more and more and more. And you need more and more and more insulation too, because you're not belonging. And when you're not belonging, you're afraid. When you're not belonging, you can't trust. You cannot connect. Um, and so what I want to say is that I, I, you know, I'm wrestling with my own past and my own lineage. And I've come to understand that a lot of the people that immigrated in this country um, and that conquered early on, before immigration, that conquered this country really were desperados that came out of their own suffering. So it's, um, I think there really isn't any greater suffering, uh, suffering than that of living in an exile from our belonging. And only that kind of suffering, that core kind of destructive wound, is actually powerful enough to create the kind of unbelievable violence that colonization and slavery have wrought. Um, that's my understanding. And I'm still questioning whether that's an easy way out, but I really don't mean it as an excuse. It's just a sense in me that it's not possible that so much suffering could be possibly induced without, you know, without the level of, of separation and, um, and suffering uh, and terror that goes along with 
having to, you know, committing these kind of acts. And I think we see that in an individual level of people committing violent crimes um, against their family, you know, that a lot of times it's, it's just the amount of, of um, damage that they have suffered themselves that they weren't able to transform or haven't had the resources to help them in any way, shape, or form to process. Um, and it's interesting. So, what is making me think about actually self-abuse? You know, if we're part of nature, you know, there's something about that, isn't there? Like, um, and, uh, um, you know, we're harming ourselves. Uh, that's kind of... Yeah, so there's, there's a sense that, like, humans are really, in a way, acting as, like, wounded and deranged animals. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I mean, and, and, you know, we've had a really wonderful friend who, um, of the school who eventually we inherited our great um, bubble-top gear truck from. Um, his name was Durham. And he used to say to Stephen and Meredith that, um, that the study of humans is like the study of a caged animal. <laughs> you know, it's like well, we're not studying the the inherent nature of humans right now. You know, most of the time we're studying the you know the really the human nature that's been encaged. Mm. You know, it, it's like we're we're not studying humans in the wild mm. uh, because we've basically you know we've done our best to eradicate them. And so to understand the grief of what that means, you know, and. And as white folks, you know, these, these are our ancestors. You know, I mean, for me personally, my, my, my grandfather was in Hitler's SS. And it's something that I have struggled with and, and hurt with so much my whole life. And, um, but, you know, but the understanding is that we, we, we carry both. We carry that burden of our history. And then we also carry those seeds from 30,000 years ago or longer. And... Um, yeah, and no matter how far, 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 far down the line, the grandmothers have sown, have blown those seeds inside us. And we are the living flow of them, still, every single one of us. Um, but it's about finding that way back. And I want to bring death back in because I think that um, um, death is a really important place in the non-belonging um, chapter, because when we don't belong, we are terrified of death. And so, you know, I've sat through so many um, times with uh, Meredith in the practice of living and dying, because after my journey with cancer, I started, I took, um, I assisted and sat in as witness and participated in different levels of things with all of Meredith um, and some of Scott's um, PLD courses, Practice of Living and Dying courses. And, you know, as a guide, once I was personally cracked open by death, my entire conversation shifted. And it's a shift that can only happen when we are exposed to death um, in some way, shape, or form. When we are exposed to an edge that um, we realize that our life is not permanent and that we may not be here tomorrow. And it's a physical sense. It's something that's irrevocably shifts a perspective. It's something that we have actually taken out of life now for a long, long time. And in our vision fast ceremony, we try to emulate that to some degree, right? We try to um, put people in a stance 
that is as close to death as possible while keeping them safe. That's kind of like the blueprint of vision fast by its passage. Um, and that's because the old ones knew that the knowing of death is vital. And that's also why, you know, the people that became medicine people, that's often the ones that got sick, that almost died, or they came back from death, because they had an even deeper knowledge of that, right? Um, and so we've done the opposite in our culture now. And, um, and we really are excluding death. And I've, I've sat through a lot of circles with Meredith explaining uh, what she felt is like the beginning of meaningless deaths that happened through the world wars where there was a number of deaths, that such a big number of deaths that we couldn't process anymore. There was no room for ritual or relationship with death. And because of that, we kind of, you know, shut off our relationship. And that certainly seems to be a good, one good explanation um, of our lacking, you know, relationship, our separation, our severance from death. But the one that has come up for me personally in my own inner being lately is that that same absence of belonging um, is really actually part of it. Because without belonging, we, we are terrified of death. Because you can't really transition out of this life um, without belonging. And I think our psyche knows that. It's, it's almost like, you know, this beautiful poem, I can't remember now. Oh, my memory was named not so good. The poet who says, um, if you, to be here just this once, yeah. you have been here just this once, you know. Um, was it Mary Oliver? It, it, no, I don't know who it is, but it's something about how that changes everything, you know. And, and that's really what I felt after my, you know, through my journey with cancer and continue to feel today. It's like, it's not about how long we're going to be here. It's about having been here once, really being present. And if you look at the fear of death, it's all about prolonging, giving more time because we really haven't arrived yet, right? So we try to push it out because we can't bear dying. I I had a dream once, and this was actually before I got cancer, when I was in a really, really hard life situation, one of my hardest yet. And... uh I had a dream about a man that was dying and it was me and this man was in the church and somehow he was dying. And I, I understood in the dream that I, that I, as this man or this man, I can't remember, he was holding on to life. And I realized that he was so afraid of death, but he was suffering so badly, but death would not come before he would say yes to it. And I understood that, that death didn't come to us before we're ready. It can't take us before we're ready. And so, but not being ready hurt more than any death ever would. And I woke up with this, like, it really rocked me. And, uh, and that's that same sense that I'm speaking to here, that I think our relationship with death, our fear, our terror, our separation has to do with the fact that we are so separate and that we don't belong. And so, at that point, we're putting death outside, you know, ourselves. We have to survive. Everything else can die. I can use everything else because I can't go away because I'm actually not really even here. And instead of me being here, I'm going to just take up as much room as I can um, and be here as long as possible. So it's really a desperate mechanism. Um, 
So we build more and more walls. We try to date later and we try to deny, you know, we, we, we're kind of like um, trying to think about what that would really mean, you know, becoming eternal. What a hell that would be. Can you imagine? Um, but we live in a culture where dying is like the, the thought of being dead. You know, we, we put people in caskets that prevent creepy crawlers to come in and feed on them for 200 years. <laughs> I mean, how sick is that? And how, you know, and that was one of my big childhood fears, actually, was being under the ground in a casket. I was very terrified of death as a child. And I kept asking about it. And nobody ever told me. I had to retell myself the story of death. That death is coming home. Nobody ever told me that. You know, that, that, and, and we do it with everything in our, in our land. We throw pesticides on the land and growth, uh, whatever, instead of really composting, instead of really, um, feeding the ground that feeds us. We don't go cyclical. We constantly go linear. And so this is an invitation. The invitation is always to come back to the fact that, that the cyclical nature of life is holding us and nature has our back and it has our humans back too, not just all the other species. Mm. And yeah, we're really fucking up in a lot of ways, but probably also we are doing the best we possibly can with what we have, just like nature always does. And if you really look back really, really long, um, all the way from when the first oxygen bubbles appeared, you know, all the kind of, death and destruction that happened on this planet and probably anywhere in the universe. And the pattern that I can see that really holds me up is that terrible things happened, but every time nature has a chance, it will turn into beauty. Every time nature has a chance, it will turn into beauty. And so I think right now in this time, you know, we see people that have had their seeds watered, whether it was for their own merit or whether they had better resources, or whether they had a better lineage, or I don't know how. You know, they were in some way gifted. And I really don't want to use the word privileged anymore. They were gifted. Because um, nothing is owed. You know, they were gifted in some way, shape, or form to have their seeds watered. And if we have, then we naturally want to seed what we want to water, we want to pass that watering on. That's what every good plant does. You know, it will grow and then it will make more seeds and it'll throw out and press out those seeds into the world. And so if your seed is watered at this time, you know, then I would say, you know, go go and help water someone else's seed. Go help activate another seed. You know, go help throw out more seeds. Mm. Uh, I think that's the calling of our time. And it doesn't deny the hardship. You know, it doesn't deny. There are no easy answers right now for us. There is so much suffering. Mm. There are my, I want to call them my sisters. I've never seen them, but I just saw them on TV. And clearly they must be my sisters. They're sitting on the street in Bangladesh in front of their of their factory, of their clothing factory, because they can't work. And they're screaming at their employer with their masks on that they need to work because their children are going hungry. 
It's like my friends in South Africa lived just across from the slum and they started feeding 200 people at the beginning of this crisis and now they're feeding 6,000 people every day. Mm. And all the people that have so little buffer and it's wonderful that we don't buy clothes anymore right now and that we don't consume and that we don't drive around in our big gasoline vehicles. But there are people on the other side of that line that are really vulnerable and they don't have the kind of storage spaces and stores that of energy and money and food that we have and there are no easy answers you know is does that mean we should just you know keep buying again and go back to macy's you know there are no easy answers um it's a it's this is a rough time yeah yeah and i guess what's the you know, to sit with that, isn't it? Because yeah, I think part of it is really is really to sit with it. I I think again, you know, for me, I can go to a place of shame and guilt so easily because of my lineage, and it typically um, doesn't actually really help me very much. But when I go there, I I try to go there in a way and just get it out of my system. And then just kind of like looking back at like, you know, what is it that's in my vicinity right now? And I'm not feeding people uh, in the line, but I am offering extra support for lots of people right now doing very exhausting Zoom councils and trying to put, you know, the little drips of water that I can sprinkle around to sprinkle them around and to know that, you know, we are not, again, we are not, it is not all up to us. And we are also not powerless. You know, we are in relationship yeah, with. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's sort of the paradox, isn't it? You know, it's mm, mm, holding both. Power, you know, power, we're powerful and powerless at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a very human-centric perspective to think that it would depend all on us. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I had this, I really had this uh, musing when um, somehow this picture came in to me of, you know, you know, just like a, the earth being just like a wild shaggy dog, just like shaking herself just once and all those fleas just flying off, you know, and it just kind of felt like here we are, you know, thinking about how the precious mother earth, we are like, we are perturbing her and all of a sudden we feel like, oh God. We might just get eradicated, if, you know, in this whole thing. It's like, that's amazing me. I mean, there's power there. And then the other thing that intrigues me is um, while it doesn't depend all on us, it, it's also having us rather than us having it, you know. But what's intriguing to me is what it evokes in us. And I think in the absence of being able to be with one another, one of the things that's coming out really clearly to me is that... Um, how important touch is to humans, you know, how important it is for us to, to, to be touched. And so it's maybe part of this big threshold that we're all in is part of that right now to learn how to be touched again, you know, to learn how to touch and to learn. I mean, there's still lots of things that are open for business. Trees really, really still receive hugs very well. Um, yes. There is, Right? There is wind that caresses our faces. Um, and maybe there is a different kind of fasting that is required with the ceremony this time. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's not about foregoing food, 
maybe it's about foregoing, you know, that, that ability of physical contact and that the craving of that. What is it fostering in us? What is it birthing in us? Where is it pointing us? You know, um, in the abstinence of things, they often grow stronger. I know that when I lost my hair to cancer, it, it, it was hard for me. And I know it's such a petty thing to say because it really doesn't matter. But man, when you're at it in that moment, it freaking matters. And I had shaved my head when I was in the cave when I was 19. I'd been there. I'd done that, you know. I had long flowing hair. And I very much had it help me remember my feminine, which is really important to me because I was raised in a culture that's brutally masculine. And it's another part of my healing journey. I did not, I did not want to lose my hair. But when I did, you know, I started dressing more feminine. I started wearing skirts and earrings. And, and it's something that has brought out the feminine ever more strongly in me was having that taken away from me. And so that's the contemplation right now I think I'm sitting with in this time is wondering. So, you know, it's not touching. It's not here. What does it, you know, how is all the ways in which I want to touch and nourish the world? And, you know, how, how does it come out in me when I can't go that usual route? Because one thing I know, it doesn't go away. It may go underground. It may come out differently. It may seep through your pores rather than pour through your whatever, but it's, it can't go away. You know, nothing ever does. It just, keeps changing i love that i think in terms of like in terms of the listeners having that reflection of of uh sitting that just what you know the the noticing of that and um and and also i love this contemplation of touch that's really that's really lovely um because i guess here when we've been locked down I've been sort of thinking you know yeah well how can I feel the wind how can I feel the mm-hmm. how can I you know yeah um, mm-hmm. and yes what is and coming back to our bodies and coming back to that realness and I, I suppose I'm go, looking back to you going to Sardinia and being a wild child there um, mm-hmm. um, in terms of I suppose the seeds just uh, sort of closing up you know the, the seeds of yeah is there anything you want to share that about about the seeds of whether this you know the school of lost borders or your, your work with women or life initiations anything you want to share before we close up well i kind of like you know where you just went actually it has more juice for me right now so i would love to close with that if if i may and that is really your question of like how you know how do i you know have contact with nature and um that's a question right now i think that's really on the forefront for all of us in our ways and and what comes to me is really like what what, what i feel is that to get as close as you can to the original source of things, to the raw nature of things. And for some of us, that means our backyards. You know, that's why in this time, so many people have started gardening, which is amazing to me because it's that relationship. If you work in the garden, actually you really are in a cyclical, reciprocal relationship. I mean, very much so. If you are living in an apartment, you know, with every level of separation, it's a little harder. You know, if you still have a balcony, it's one thing. If you don't, if you're living on like the 50th floor somewhere in the middle of 
you know, a really busy. So it gets harder and harder, but it's never inaccessible. So I would say go to the closest route that you have um, to the original, you know, to where things are unmitigated, because that's where the energy is easiest to feel and to connect with. And one thing when you said, you know, how do I like, well, open the window for one, let the, let the wind, you know, let, let it actually notice that the wind is touching your face. Um, because there's still that, you know, we can even take it all the way to trying to notice that the breath is still entering our nostrils, you know, that we wouldn't be here without it. And that this breath is coming from the tree that I see outside the window. Try to make as much connection as possible. Get as close to the origins as possible. I also think studying the, the, um, the connection to the original of things can be really helpful at this time. And so with your body, certainly with your senses, like what we talked about, you know, um, but also literally trying to understand how something works. So we can, you know, we can um, learning and relationship building with knowledge also can be really good. You know, it, it's so amazing how many, like, you know, how heartening it is for us to know, for example, that the way that the forest works is actually in co-participatory nature and that there are, that there is one tree that is actually when another tree isn't getting light is, is filtering a certain amount of its, of its, of what it's, it's receiving through the sunlight of its own photosynthesis. And it's, and it's giving that to the other tree who is in the sun less, you know, which is really mind boggling. And it's yeah. so appealing for us because we think about competition and, you know, the survival of the fittest. And we, we have all these things that are really old paradigm thinking. Um, and to open our minds to new co-creational, flowing, you know, naturally evolving, moving, uh, co-participatory relationship um, is vital for us. So, it, you know, all levels are good. So good books are good. You know, it's not like, oh, no, I can only do this with my body right now. Good food for the mind is good, and good food for the soul is important, you know, whether it's a dream journal or, you know, this is also a time where a lot of stuff is evoked. The threshold is so big, and our habits are so interrupted that this is a time of opportunity as as much as the suffering. It's also a time of insight. It's a time of quantum leaps, you know, that can appear. I. I almost feel like it's a time where the cracks of the earth are open and there's all this energy emanating. Certainly, if you have any access to the raw natural world, use it, you know. Um, and that, I, I would say, is, is really, really big. But to say that all four shields are available always, you know, the body and the psyche, the deep, deep, deep psyche and... The mind, you know, the, the nature of mind is actually to relationship. That's the nature of mind. It's not necessarily about power. It's about relationship, to remember that. And the East, you know, the power of um, the spirit and the unknown, the unknowns to us, the trust that whatever is here now wouldn't be here if it wasn't needed for what wants to be coming next and that nothing is static you know we don't stop here and 
we are bound between the lineage that we come from, but the but the moving us forward isn't just by looking back. You know, that's the thing. When people talk about remembering, they often think about going back to the old times or to the good times or to the I don't know what. But that's not an option, you know, not, not as much as staying in the present is either. We are perpetually being moved and moving as we are being moved. And it's from the invitation of the future that we are getting pulled forward into all that is yet to be. That's where we incorporate whatever experiences, whether it's things that we regret we have done or things that um, we have learned or things that have changed for us. It's the invitation from the future that is coming of what is right action now. Um, what is pulling us forward? What is ours to do? What is calling ourselves out? Mm. And that invitation right now is vibrant in the field and vital in the field. And I, like many others, my knees are shaking. There's a lot of invitation. You know, I'm contemplating many things that are very, very risky right now because the invitation from the future is so big right now. And so I want to end with that because... Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the hardship and the suffering this time, and it's really important to do that, and especially for all the people that are so much more vulnerable than us, marginalized community of all sorts and colors and races and all sorts of um, unproportionate, very, very unproportionate suffering um, that's endured right now. And to also not deny the invitation that is here to find our places of being in right relationship, you know, moving into the, the, the invitation that's calling us from the future. Mm-hmm. What is the world, you know, that we want to continue to live in and die in and die into mm-hmm. so that new can come? Mm-hmm. Um, how are we giving ourselves to death in a way that can facilitate life, that can feed life? How are we willing to feed life in a way that new life can evolve from us and through us? How can we find a belonging that helps us to trust and give away? Mm. Now the big reflective Questions to, you know, and I'm reminded of Rukes, you know, sort of like sit with the questions, you know, they're too big to be answered. That's the questions in themselves. That's a beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And I would say, I would say it's never been about the answers. It's always about the questions. Yeah, lovely. Oh, thank you so much, Petra, with that. But I feel inspired. I've got goosebumps around that. That's really lovely. Okay, yeah. It was really beautiful to be with you. I want to thank you for, you know, for inviting my voice here today. And I, my prayer is that in some way, shape, or form, it can serve whatever, whatever is next. And really the great beauty that, that it's, it's her who I serve. Um, it's that, and I, I, even that's just the name, but it, it's, um, it's the unspeakable, but the, I have such gratitude for this life. Thank you so much for offering um, this conversation today. 
Thank you so much. I feel very honoured. So we'll pause here and see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast and let us know what you think and what you need because we want this podcast to be helpful and meaningful for you. In the meantime, enjoy Earth one conversation at a time.